Uh, welcome to Nothing Never Happens. The episode today uh, is on intersectional pedagogies. And I want to welcome two people from the University of Houston at Clear Lake. First of all, Dr. Desdemona Rios, who is Associate Professor of Psychology at UHCL. She has a joint doctorate in Women's Studies and Psychology from the University of Michigan. Her research focuses on narrative identities and promise for Latinx American high school students and LGBTQ college students. Professor Rios has articles in both of Kim Case's edited books. In Deconstructing Privilege, the article with Abigail Stewart is entitled Recognizing Privilege by Reducing Invisibility, the Global Feminism's Project as a Pedagogical Tool. And in Intersectional Pedagogy, she has co-written two articles. The first is entitled Decentering Student Uniqueness in Lessons about Intersectionality with M. Bowling and J. Harris and Infusing Intersectionality, Complicating the Psychology of Women course um, with Professor Case. Kim Case, Ph.D., is Professor of Psychology at the University of Houston Clear Lake and Director of the Applied Social Issues Graduate Degree. She has won multiple teaching and service awards, most recently the 2017 Outstanding Teacher Teaching and Mentoring Award at the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. And she is the co-editor of the two books that I just mentioned, Deconstructing Privilege, Teaching and Learning as Allies in the Classroom, published by Routledge in 2013, and Intersectional Pedagogy, Complicating Identity and Social Justice, Routledge 2017. She brings intersectional theories into pedagogical practices. Uh, Kim Case shows us the practical implications and transformative possibilities for uh, prioritizing intersectional issues of race, class, gender, sexuality, and the rest in the college classroom. I've invited both these scholar activists to guide us through the complicated and vital issues of intersectional theories and practices in the classroom. Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, Kim and Desi. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm really glad to talk to you about these really important issues, especially in, in these current times. Uh, if we could start off uh, for our listeners, if you could define intersectional and intersectionality for us, uh, and especially, you know, the origins of the term. Uh, does it come from probably a, a whole range of places, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, famous article, you know, from the field of legal theory, uh, the Combahee River Collective Statement, Maria Lugonis. I mean, there's just a wealth of material from, you know, 25 and sooner years ago. So we'll start with um, trying to define it. It's a very complex theory that often gets misunderstood, as you probably already know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the central tenets that I try to keep in mind and try to use in terms of critical praxis of intersectional theory is the social justice component. Um, you know, yeah. I, I'm sure you're aware that intersectionality has taken off in terms of uh, being a word that a lot of people use, a term that a lot of people use, and it can often get used in ways that leave out the social justice requirement of it. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think in terms of us coming from a perspective of psychology as a discipline, um, intersectionality often gets uh, reduced down to the individual level when, in fact, intersectional theory calls on us to remember and very much examine structural, institutional, societal level um, factors um, and barriers and also advantages mm -hmm. that people face, right, and how they yeah. how they interact, right? So mm -hmm. that gets that's challenging for people is to consider not just a list, but mm -hmm. how those various forms of oppression or at the same time, I guess, um, it can be, you know, social identities that people are working with, mm -hmm. how they are constructed and how much they influence each other and alter each other, in fact. Um, other pieces that we have to remember are the analysis of power and privilege, um, centering marginalized voices, validating subjugated knowledge that, you know, traditionally gets pushed to the side and invalidated, of course, um, and then making the invisible visible, which I think is a, a central component of Desi, Desi Rios' work, actually, and yeah. I'll let her say some more about. So this theory is very com complex, and when I teach it, mm -hmm. at some point, students inevitably start, they reduce it to a description of who people are, and th the language becomes that at these intersections, we have these unique experiences. Yeah. And so one quick way to state it is that intersectionality is about how things work mm -hmm. rather than people are. So it's not simply a description of who people are. Yeah, so the, the power relations issue comes yes. to to bear. Um, mm -hmm. So it's about identity, power, uh, privilege, um, and raising awareness about those things. And it's 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 sort of a an, an ever changing uh, terrain that you have to be open and take risk about, right? In the classroom, um, it's not something you can box up and be done forever, right? That's a fair description because I think it honestly takes some courage to bring this into the classroom yes. because mm -hmm. right now we honestly don't understand it ourselves, right? We're also <laughs> yeah. we're students of this theory and we have to sort of be okay with going to the classroom and not necessarily feeling like experts. And I yeah. think that does shut down a lot of um, innovative instruction that can happen when we get really um, – we, w we walk into the classroom and out of a place of fear versus a, a place of bravery, perhaps, yeah. that we're all taught that we should already know, right? So mm -hmm. as instructors, we have to admit that we don't know um, and admit to our students that we don't know, but we're going to walk in this, work on this together. Yes. Um, and the other piece, so just as an example, because mm -hmm. we're talking very abstractly right now, yeah. you know, intersectional theory means, for example, I have to look at how, as a white woman, mm -hmm. how I experience sexism isn't going to be the same as how a Latina or black woman or indigenous woman experiences sexism. The sexism gets altered by racism and mm -hmm. by social class different things, right? So yeah. that's the piece. It's back to Desi pointing out that students think of it as sort of a list and sort of individual uniqueness, but it's mm -hmm. really about how each of these systems change each other. Um, so, yeah, yeah I just want yeah, so it's also uh, about our social locations and how those can be uh, a hindrance or a help in the classroom, um, a hindrance if we don't acknowledge um, the issues around our own, you know, power imbalance and um, privilege in the classroom.
vis-a-vis -vis our students. Yes. Um, okay, so where, where did y'all get uh, started doing intersectional pedagogy? I mean, was it, you know, some graduate school course or your students uh, who said, uh, I remember reading one thing that Kim wrote about with her psycho uh, women course that, you know, an African-American student came up and said, I am not represented in the psych of women textbook. So, you know, what are, what are the, what were the roots? What motivated you to begin doing intersectional theory and practice in the classroom and what continues to keep you motivated? So this is Desi and I okay. found a lot of my practice in the psychology of invisibility. Uh -huh. So thinking about how the absence of social representations, as Stephanie Freiberg would say, that is a social representation. It tells us who matters in our society and also who doesn't. And so in the fifth grade, as you mentioned earlier, being a theory nerd, I've always been a nerd. So I couldn't <laughs> wait to go to school. I loved reading. And I would finish my textbooks way ahead of time. So I would read, you know, in advance of the assignments. And I had finished my social studies book, and I remember thinking to myself, hmm, I guess Mexicans haven't done anything important in the United <laughs> States. Yeah. Because obviously people who do important things get written about, and we learn mm -hmm. about them in school. So when I went to college, and I got to take courses, uh, you know, exclusively about Mexican-Americans, Chicano Studies courses, mm -hmm. I realized that featured in any of my courses. And then I took women's studies courses, and I realized that there were very few, if any, women of color featured. Ah, yeah. And so I was thinking about this. I didn't have a word for it, and certainly not a theory, to explain what was happening. And it wasn't mm -hmm. until I got to graduate school at the University of Michigan where I started to learn about this. And most psychologists aren't trained in this way. I um, I'm a graduate of the joint studies, uh, the joint uh, degree program in women's studies and psychology. Mm -hmm. And I participated in the Global Feminisms Project, yeah, and, which is um, an archive, a digital archive of women activists and scholars from around the world. Mm -hmm. And at the time, interviews included China, India, Poland, and the United States. And the U.S. site, the theme was intersectionality. And so I experienced um, listening to these different women talk about um, what feminism meant to them, how they um, enacted feminist principles, and then also all of the different social issues. And some of them were the same, uh, but yeah. they did look different depending on, as you mentioned, um, the activist scholars social location. So mm -hmm. that's how I, it was a lifelong process. Yeah. So this is, and I, I was lucky enough when I was in graduate school, as a, as a, mm -hmm. honestly, as an experimental psychology doctoral student, which is hilarious, <laughs> um, because I did a qualitative dissertation and they looked at me really oh. funny for that. Um, <laughs> while I was there, I think about the time I was teaching that course that you just referred to, where it was the first time I taught psychology of women, mm -hmm. I was co-teaching white woman graduate student and I thought you know I had done this great job of this supplemental um, you know readings packet that they put together at the bookstore for you if you if you so um, request and it was you know 
the writings by lesbian women and the writings by black women and the writings by, uh, we might have had something about women in poverty or something like that. Um, yeah. But of course the textbook, she was 100% right, the student that pointed out, like, I'm not here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, maybe even that same year, I was taking a course with Patricia Hill Collins, uh. who was at the University of Cincinnati at the time, since has left there. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a women's studies course called Black Women's Sexuality. And so here I am learning about intersectional theory from one of the biggest recognized names in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, get cited in terms of, um, you know, helping progress that theory forward and infusing it throughout higher education. Um, so, you know, my mind is uh, wrapping around that. I'm at the time also leading the White Women Against Racism group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, you know, working on thinking about, although we didn't use the term intersections, but our intersections in terms of gender and race and how we use our privilege for social justice in that context and what does that mean when, you know, women in our families tell us to be silent, so keep the family peace and all these gendered constructions around that. So I think all of those things were a little bit of a perfect storm for me yeah. um, to be thinking about that. The, the problem is I couldn't find resources on how to teach this, mm. right? Which is usually how I end up writing a book 10 years later because I, I spend 10 years trying to find something and then it's not there and it's not there. It's still not there. And then I go, oh, my yeah. God, why? Why does it have to be me? So <laughs> that's... Um, I guess the short version, but also interacting with people like Desi Rios, like Abby Stewart at Michigan, um, and Elizabeth Cole at Michigan, who have been really, um, I think, leaders in not only the theory side, but the practice side of how does one work with your students, with in your professional associations, out in the community. Um, I think I've just either accidentally or maybe um, chosen wisely people that I hang out with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're you're beginning to talk about um, the uh, the applied theory piece of this. Um, so I want to ask you uh, about the social justice piece. But first, uh, how do we get beyond the add and stir model? You know, where you add in, you know, you just check off the boxes. Okay, here we have feminist. Here we have, you know, womanist, African American voices. Here we have transnational voices and critiques. Uh, here we have, um, you know, transgender critiques. How do we get beyond that into something that is structurally transformative and critical? Well, that's the problem, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right I would say, oh, it's scary to say this, but I, and I hope I'm wrong, but I feel like the majority of the people using the word intersectional theory or intersectionality are doing additive model yeah. work. Yeah. And they are, you know, very much from a, a, a solid place and an internal motivation to do better and to serve mm-hmm. the, this, um, these issues better and to serve their students better will rewrite their syllabus to include authors from, you know, different multiple locations. And that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, they might incorporate assignments that ask students to think about more than just one issue, but not necessarily in conjunction with each other. So yeah. I think the key here is intentionality. Mm-hmm. I also think in Chapter 5, you mentioned the chapter about infusing intersectionality into the Psychology of Women course. That chapter is about starting from scratch. I think I don't have the skills. There may be people out there that have the skills to take a course and leave it the way it was built and then go back and put intersectionality into it. I don't think I can do that. And I'm not sure people can. I think you have to just scrap it all 
and start over from the ground up to say, if I'm going to have intersectionality infused throughout this course, I can't just add a little bit here and there. I really have to rethink how I'm even approaching my pedagogy in the first place. Um, yeah. And we have to be constantly vigilant that we're not just listing or thinking about mm -hmm. race over here and then class over here and then sexuality over here, but constantly bringing back up. And I think you have to have, build a toolkit of activities in the classroom that mm -hmm. will help come back to how these actually influence each other and they're not mutually exclusive categories because we fall into it constantly. What, what else? Yeah. yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Desi, do you want to add to that? Um, I think Kim covered it. I have some ideas, um, assignments that mm -hmm. engage in, but I think you're going to ask us that in a little bit. Unless yes. You want to well, let's just uh, slide into that. This is a good uh, segue. Um, because um, there's a, a whole lot of theory on intersectionality, and I'm going to put those resources, uh, if I can limit myself, uh, uh, on the website um, so people can see those. Um, but it's, it's a bottomless pit almost with things coming out every year, new books and new articles. Um, and I think um, one of the things that I'm trying to do on this podcast is connect the dots uh, between the theory and the classroom practices. And so could you talk about um, student projects, exercises, pedagogical strategies for the classroom that have um, worked really well for you or haven't worked very well? Because, you know, you can learn also from the things that uh, didn't work well the first time that you learned from even more? So an exercise that I use, I teach a course at the graduate level, and I do mm -hmm. a version at the graduate level. Um, uh, I teach a course on the psychology of gender, race, and sexuality, which is framed mm -hmm. by intersectional theory. And the intersectionality project, mm -hmm. um, students in the course, we select one social issue. Um, and this might be whatever they want to do. So it takes, you know, it takes 20 minutes for them to kind of hash out what seems most relevant to the entire group. So once we decide on a single social issue, uh -huh. then they identify groups that they would like to research. So mm -hmm. black women, white men, um, Latina immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and sometimes they will choose a single identity. So they'll say, I want to um, study lesbians which mm -hmm. doesn't consider, you know, that intersecting, those intersecting identities. But invariably, it, it's going to come out. Um, the mm -hmm. intersection analysis happens. And so over the course of the term, uh, they all have assigned reading, and we are always applying the reading mm -hmm. to books, different examples. But over the course of the semester, they have to research how that particular social issue affects their group. Um, yeah. How it affects them, what resources are available to that group. And then they must also engage in some kind of service learning, so they mm. um, or activism. So um, a lot of our students, our population, it's an older population. Um, mm -hmm. It's an entrepreneurial population. A lot of them work full time, et cetera. So sometimes the activism looks like they write a letter to their state senator. Other yeah. times they will coordinate something on campus. They'll bring in a speaker or they'll mm -hmm. do a poetry slam or these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But they must some type of activism 
And so there they gain an appreciation for how hard that work is and also how you have to carefully research what is needed by the community. At the end of the semester, they each present on what they mm -hmm. found. Mm -hmm. So then we start to see how a single issue and the assumptions that we make based on our standpoint, which is always going to be um, partial, um, they start to gain an understanding that a single social issue affects different groups differently. In some mm -hmm. ways, overlap. But mostly what comes out is that not all groups have the same access. Not all groups have the same privilege. That some groups have many more barriers or challenges. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, to education, to health care. Um, mm -hmm. Even the idea of one uh, year the students chose same-sex marriage, and this was before the Supreme Court ruling. Um, mm -hmm. And just yeah, of the, um, you know, all the hurdles that same-sex couples have to go through in order to adopt children, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that it has been an extremely effective exercise. Yeah. Um, and it's been, our field has recognized it nationally. Different divisions have um, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. honors for, for that particular exercise. And it's in Kim's um, book. Yeah. So the previous iteration of that, my version of that is an intersectional public education project. So instead of the whole class picking a social issue, each student individually can pick an intersection or an intersectional issue that they want to educate some part of the public about. So they have to pick a target group who mm -hmm. you're going to educate. So the idea from behind both of these projects is to get away from the idea that only the instructor is going to look at your work, right? Which yes. is not exactly student engagement. I mean, they want yeah. to know that their work is going to be important. I mean, I guess I guess what I'm saying is their motivation and the quality of the work changes when they know other eyeballs are going to be seeing this, yeah. or that they're going to be taking this out into the community. For example, I had a student choose um, to do workshops with juvenile detention officers mm. on masculinity and homophobia and human trafficking, mm -hmm. the intersection of all of those things and how these juvenile detention officers needed to understand those intersections to better serve the underage boys, honestly, that they're working with and trying to counsel um, out of the system, we hope, right? So yeah, that's it doesn't get more real than that, right? Like, um, and one of the other students had contacted a, a nonprofit in New York City that works to get um, transnational domestic workers legal rights onto brochures and languages that they know, right? So all these languages from all over the world mm -hmm. and out on paper to these to these mostly women, right? Who yeah. are often unaware that they have legal rights. For example, that someone can't take your visa away from you and that mm -hmm. you have rights in how many hours you work and things like that. So he helped them translate and get brochures out to these women, um, just mm -hmm. as an example. And then I don't know how many more examples you want. There's yeah. also the Maya personality social media campaign that I started with one of my students which honestly is being done outside the classroom. However, mm -hmm. I am trying to get that into the hands of instructors that might want to use it inside the classroom to help students think more about um, their own intersectionality, but not just at the individual level, um, also structural aspects and looking at some of the original works by um, intersectional scholars mm -hmm. and that we can sort of use things like Twitter and Instagram and whatever else mm -hmm. Um, kids are using these days that yeah. I'm so out of touch with um, to get them to make them feel like this is going beyond the classroom right or beyond just my instructor's eyes for a grade it actually has a bigger meaning yeah yeah well this is this is helpful 
Um, so, uh, you know, in the classroom, you're, you're having a student-centered approach. Yes. Um, could you talk about uh, one thing that you have learned most recently uh, from your students uh, as you're doing this kind of intersectional work? I love that question. I might have to think. Let's see. Okay. Yeah. We can come back to it. <laughs> oh, no, no, let's not. No, okay. most recently, okay, I think, I'm not sure how recent it is, but I keep learning the same thing over and over and then forgetting, which mm -hmm. is that if I take a risk in the classroom and I feel shaky about it and I'm like, I'm not really sure how this is going to go, mm -hmm. my students usually almost 100% rise to the occasion. So, for example, when I first, very first time I, I introduced this intersectional public education project, um, I had no scaffolding for them. I had mm -hmm. really a paragraph, maybe, of instructions for the project. Mm -hmm. It was, it wasn't, it wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was the most advanced pedagogy I've ever <laughs> brought into the classroom. Yeah. However, they did amazing things with it. And, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the, at the end of the semester, I said to them, because we had to have a conversation about four weeks in about how they were begging for scaffolding. And then they didn't know that word, of course. And yeah. I said, let's talk about scaffolding and how I'm not going to give that to you. And here's <laughs> why I'm not going to give that to you. Because you need to take point A and figure out what you want point Z to be. Mm -hmm. And then you need to be able to figure out what the steps in between are without an instructor telling you, because that's not how the real world works, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so those are the conversations we would have. Well, at the end of the semester, I said, look around, look what you've done. Mm -hmm. And I said, isn't it great that I refused to give you scaffolding, right? Like, <laughs> I sort of brought it back to claim that it was all part of the big plan. Mm -hmm. um, and I had one student in particular, and she knows, and we talk about this all the time, that was kicking and screaming the entire semester that she didn't want to actually take her project and present it to anyone in the public. She just wanted to give it to the class, and she wanted to stay safe with it. Mm -hmm. And I said, you're not completing your project unless you do these things. You have to at least email it out to people. What she had created was fabulous. It was a handout, probably four pages mm -hmm. long, on intersectional theory designed as a handout to give out to students. So it was this fabulous mm -hmm. resource for faculty, and she didn't want anybody to see it. And so she sent it to people like um, Dylan Zambrana, uh, mm -hmm. who, you know, all these sort of famous scholars which mm -hmm. I thought, well, I'll take it to a whole other level. And then she got these fabulous responses from them, how impressed they were by it. And so mm -hmm. we have a lot of I told you so moments where I remind her that she didn't want to do that. Um, yeah. But look at the wonderful thing that came out of it, right? So Yeah. Oh, that's a great example. Yeah. Well, let's step back just a, a little bit and talk about how do you create in your classrooms um, – that uh, space for trust, because what you're talking about, um, you know, implies a certain amount of transparency and mutual accountability and that you are trusting your students um, and sharing power in the classroom. So how do you um, begin in, in your classes at the beginning of the semester to lay the groundwork so that that kind of thing can happen? So something that I talk about throughout the semester, especially when they're feeling discouraged, is the incremental theory of intelligence. So this idea that we continue to get smarter over time. Mm -hmm. um, I was listening to one of your podcasts on um, the queer theory. Is this, mm -hmm. His name is right now. But he mentioned uh -huh. how 
um, so many, you know, so often we feel like we have to be experts and you have to yeah. get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really emphasize the importance of making mistakes. And as Kim mentioned, we are going to make mistakes. We mm-hmm. know a lot mm-hmm. and we can share that with our students. Um, but there's a lot that we also don't know and that we're also building as we go along. And so reminding them that that is one of the most important parts of learning and the way that I teach psychology, not just psychology of women or the psychology of gender, race, sexuality, but my social psychology classes, personality. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think about how to do this all of the time, um, infuse intersectional theory, um, help my students think more in terms of social structures, um, the person in context. Mm-hmm. And so that feels scary and it, um, and that's okay. And uh, making, you know, being innovative, making change requires um, that we walk through that fear mm-hmm. and yeah. probably create something amazing together. They don't believe us at first, but they no. come around. They think uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me, I want to say something maybe about a con, a concrete strategy that I use too. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I, the other thing I think that Desi and I both do is we're very open about ourselves yeah. with our students and that gets mm-hmm. to be challenging because as women faculty especially mm-hmm. um for desi as a woman of color too more compounded is the idea that students expect a certain amount of access they expect you to be their friend they expect to be mm-hmm. one they expect to be motherly so there's all this gender stuff at play however um i think as a strategy or as something that organically happens and helps the students um i think they're see us as more approachable that we do say things like oh i remember you said your mother was sick how's she feeling right i mean mm-hmm. and that isn't because we're, we're doing that to think oh i gotta get this student to believe i like them or some sort of yeah. actual yeah. you know robotic strategy or anything but it's more like how we approach other people and i think it also speaks to students who come from communities that value interdependence Yes. which is a huge part of our population. We have a lot of first-generation, low-income, students of color, um, like she said, returning students who might feel like this is a space they're not welcome in, right? So I think... And for our population, we have a lot of students with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Right. So one of the things I do... So there's that. And then one of the things mm-hmm. I do is more of a concrete activity on the first day of class, and I can give you the citations for this, is something called the... Um, class interview, class reciprocal interview. So I interview the students and they feel like this is typically what would happen, right? Like I ask them about why they've taken the class and we do this thing and they report back, but then I flip it and Mm -hmm. they interview me and then they just light up, right? Like, oh my gosh, I get to ask the professor about themselves and about, so they ask these amazing questions like, you know, they'll ask things like, what are your pet peeves? Mm Because they don't want to, you know, something that's annoying to you but then they'll ask things like if you had unlimited funds and time what research would you do and you know we just get to know each other in that way and um the study that i did collecting data on what that what impact that has on students it turns out really impacts marginalized students more than anyone because they end up feeling like yes i would approach this professor Mm -hmm. after class yes i would go to office hours yes i would ask verification it, it changes the responses from students who typically don't feel like this is their space oh yeah uh, well that's just more of a concrete kind mm-hmm. of a group that's helpful
concludes part one of our podcast on intersectional pedagogy. In part two, we talk with Kim and Desi about student and institutional resistance and challenges, along with concrete curricular and teaching suggestions for a culturally relevant pedagogy.